When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. That's all right. And then got it. Hello and welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Mark Hudson, and my guests today are Professor Judith Shapiro at the American University uh, in the USA and Professor John Andrew McNeish, who's at the Norwegian University of Life Sciences. We'll be discussing their recent edited volume, Our Extractive Age, Expressions of Violence and Resistance, which is published by Routledge in, as part of their studies of extractive industries and sustainable development. And the project that uh, sits underneath the book was sponsored by the Directorate of of, for the Internationalization of Education in Norway. So if we could begin with brief introductions from uh, both of you, you first, Judith, sort of who you are, what you're generally interested in, and when extractivism became a big part of what you do, and why. Hmm. Well, thank you for having us here today. Um, it's, a, it's a thrill. Um, I uh, teach primarily about China, and I've researched about China since really the mid-1970s. Uh, and I'm mostly interested in authoritarianism and the environment as far as it affects China domestically. But in recent years, China has gone out on the so-called Belt and Road, and that has led to what we could call an intensification of the metabolism of globalization, if you will. And so China has joined the bandwagon of developed countries extracting resources from the developing world. And I've been very interested in how that's playing out. I think it's a dramatic sort of tipping point for the planet, if you will, the arrival of China on the scene. So yeah, so I've done lots and lots of books on China, um, on the Cultural Revolution, on China's environmental challenges domestically, and then most recently a book called China Goes Green, Coercive Environmentalism for a Troubled Planet, and we can talk about that later. So thank you. 
And John, same question, John Andrew, rather, same questions to you, if you be so kind. Thanks, Mark. Um, so I have a background as an anthropologist who has worked not in China, but rather in Latin America uh, for many years. Um, really initially sort of coming off the back of PhD research focused on indigenous politics and in questions around the development of indigenous communities. Um, I've really, you know, moved uh, over time in response to really the, the experiences of the communities that I worked with, um, moved um, really in time to focus more and more on extractive politics in the region of Latin America. Um, I've had an experience of being of doing research in Bolivia, um, in um, Guatemala, and also in Colombia. And in each of those countries, the issue of extractive politics has become intensified um, as processes of extraction also intensified um, from the late 1980s, early 1990s onwards. Latin America has always been a region which, uh, at least since uh, the conquest, has been a region that has been stripped for its natural resources. Um, many of its nations have built their economies and their political systems on the, the basis, in fact, of extraction of natural resources. But in the 1990s, early 1990s onwards, there was a real boom um, in the extraction of, of natural resources across Latin America. And so all of those countries that um, I have worked in, all of them experienced a major um, intensification of the extraction of natural resources. And that would have direct impact um, at a national level in terms of changing the course of politics and economics, but also would have a very significant effect, significant impact on local communities, including those communities that I had previously worked on, um, i.e. Uh, indigenous communities or peasant communities in that region of the world. Thanks very much. And going on from here, whichever one of you wants to answer a question, obviously you're both welcome to. And something that you touched on there, and you both touched on, is this question of an intensification in the 1990s. But what would you say to someone who says, well, extractivism is simply, the, the term extractivism is simply a new label for something that's been going on for 500 years, or you could say that the Roman Empire was extractivist. So what is it that you mean by extractivism? How long has it been going on for? Is it just another word for eco-imperialism? And if it's something new, what's new about it? Is it satellites and container ships and um, high-speed rail, or is it is it something else? Ginny, you want me to go first? Uh, is that okay? I mean, Mark, you know, when we're talking about extractivism, I mean, it's fair enough to make a connection to earlier perspectives, um, to look at this as an extension of capitalism, to look at this as the extension of primitive accumulation, um, to look at this as the extension of earlier experiences of empire and imperialism, all of that I think is correct to say that this is, you know, can, it can be connected. When we're talking about extractivism, we can connect it to that. But there are some um, some differences that we wanted to flag with this book uh, when we're thinking of, you know, and talking about extractivism directly. One is that we wanted to really place an emphasis on um, on the fact that this is a logic, this is a particular means or mode of thinking 
um, which has intensified. It's not that it's 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 new necessarily, but that this has intensified um, in um, in our recent times, an intensified logic where um, we're not just carrying out processes of natural resource extraction, but we're talking about a form or logic where that extraction does no longer have any limits. It is extractivism. It is a, a logic of removal, a logic of erasure, um, which I think also um, import, is important to say, we know as being something which is global in nature. It's no longer something just to be found in discrete uh, enclaves of extraction. We are now looking at what um, we would have called in this book a planetary assemblage. Michael Watts's piece at the end of the book is extremely good in terms of actually describing in very rich detail, in fact, what that planetary assemblage looks like. Uh, and so that's that's what we're getting at, you know, a logic, but then also a logic which is of a, of a planetary or a global nature. And if I can add, we also explored in the book um, some new forms of extraction, um, because traditionally we think about uh, mining and fisheries and timber and um, oil and natural gas. Um, but we also discovered that we can find extraction in um, kind of controlling supply chains and in digital, in the digital world and in the built environment and a whole series of places. I mean, we could talk a little bit about how that came to be in that um, many of the scholars involved with the book are from a big, wide range of disciplines. And so often the study of extraction is um, something that anthropologists, uh, environmental justice people, political ecologists tend to focus on, but less so perhaps the political scientists and the lawyers and the economists. And so we brought in a whole range of people from a whole range of disciplines to find, basically to, to create a cross an interdisciplinary conversation about this whole concept of extraction. And we could actually define three areas. You know, there's extraction, which is just simply the act of extracting. There's extractivism, which is the logic that John just described. And then there's a new sort of way of looking at this, which is extractivism, where you capitalize the letter A, and that has to do with the resistance um, the activism involved um, in the face of all of this extraction. So we explore all three of those concepts um, in the book. Thanks both. Uh, and that that did strike me when I was reading uh, just just the author biographies of all the individual chapters that it it wasn't half a dozen anthropologists from one, small cluster of universities and a, a sprinkling of other people. So perhaps if you could tell us a bit about both the impetus for the book, um, did you sort of, did you bump into each other at a, a conference and realize that you were both tackling the same issues and then start to work together or is it something else? And then uh, if you could just talk briefly about the sort of the mechanics, the process of bringing together this edited volume and it seems to have been at least finished during the pandemic. So was there sort of extra difficulties or was it easier there? Do you want to start? Um, 
In many ways, uh, our Norwegian donors should be very happy about this book because I don't think the book would have been written without the grant. Um, and the grant was a rather complex grant. Uh, it was intending to create a whole range of interactions between the Norwegian University of Life Sciences and a particular program within the School of International Service at American University in Washington, namely the Global Environmental Politics Program. And so there was money in the grant um, to exchange students and to co-teach courses and all kinds of stuff like that. But part of the grant was also to create a joint research project. And so in the initial phases, it was simply a question of uh, the scholars from the different universities spending a week here or two weeks there at each other's universities. And then eventually a larger group of um, people from Norway came to the US and we spent some time brainstorming. And our task was essentially to figure out what are the what is the burning issue that we all feel is important enough and that we all have something to say about, you know, that should then be the basis for this collaboration. So that's how it happened. And um, John and I were the lucky people, each of us at our different universities to be named as the, the head of the so-called research, what do they called it? The research uh, work package, they called it. Um, so John and I were thrown together, and um, I, I guess I feel lucky to know John and to have worked with John. Um, but um, for me, this field is, I, I would say it's less of a, a long-term core research focus for me than it probably is for John. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but as I said earlier, I've been primarily focused on intellectual freedom in China, you know? So, um, and China's only come late in the game to this whole extraction um, effort. So I have learned a lot from this process. Um, I don't know what John wants to add to that description of our process. I mean, for, for me, this was an extension of work that I had been doing anyway. So this, this is, you know, a field where um, I have, already done some research and already done some writing. I should just have another book out since it might be of interest as well to those that are listening. I have another book that's just come out called Sovereign Forces, Everyday Challenges to Environmental Governance in Latin America, which is again another book which exploring a particular um, element of extractive politics in Latin America. So I have, a, I have a, an experience of working in this field. Um, but I think that, I mean, Judy actually um, although I may be the one who has this, this kind of the, the, the strongest foundation looking at extractive politics, Judy's the one that really created this opportunity in the first place. It's really off the back of Judy coming to visit Norway and, and finding her way to us here at the Norwegian University of Life Sciences and finding out that actually that we are very, you know, we're very much sister institutions. We are institutions that um, have similar areas of teaching and research. Uh, albeit from somewhat different perspectives and takes. We're both environments that um, are concerned with issues of environmental governance, and we're both um, departments as well that have a strong focus on political ecology. 
as well. Uh, and so there are very good matches actually to be found between our tour environments uh, and uh, between the people that we have here. Having said that, we've also added in this book, um, we've also over time added other voices as well to the book that we felt um, um, were necessary in order to give um, further solidity to, um, to the book uh, and to its foundations within extractive politics. Thanks both. Um, that's interesting how different projects come from obviously from different places and there are a, a large number of chapters in here and I want to talk about at least a few of them. Before we do that though, um, one citation that came up repeatedly as you'd expect is uh, the Nixon quote around a uh, citation rather around slow violence and I was wondering if either of you would like to first explain what's meant by slow violence for any listeners who don't know, but also maybe how your conceptualization of extractivism challenges or sits alongside or above or below this notion of slow and, and maybe complicates this notion of slow violence. Do you want me to take it first, Judy? Okay. So, um, with slow violence, we are, I guess, we're piggybacking, as others have done as well, um, off of the back of the work done by Nixon and off of uh, work that's really been focused primarily on looking at, at the impact of pollution and contamination, the way that extractive processes result in pollution and contamination, where the effects of that are not immediately obvious that it takes time as this pollution contamination seeps into the earth, seeps into the water resources, seeps into the air. It's only over time that the consequences of that impact on the environment becomes evident. And what we're you know, saying is that, that that's the case as well with a whole range of, of you know, extractive processes and, and extractive impacts that you know, when we're talking about physical transformations, but we're also looking at extractive processes, which are more, um, you know, the, the non-physical in terms of perhaps intellectual um, extraction, um, looking at um, other kind of, um, you know, when we're thinking about uh, data, when we're talking about uh, knowledge, uh, et cetera, et cetera, there are, there are that these the, the evidences of the impacts don't are not immediately evident. They take time to become evident. Um, and you can connect that as well to um, this idea of a global assemblage as well, is that many parts of that global assemblage will often remain hidden for us because of the distance between you know, you know points of consumption and points of extraction. And so the you know things become distance and become are not made obvious to us, um, at least in, initially. The, the part, parts of that system only become evident as time goes on, as we become more aware as well of the interconnections that exist in our planet uh, between all of the processes that connect up uh, this global extractive system. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, I think that we also wanted to stress as well is that you know that. Um, the way in which this has become evident to many uh, in recent years is because actually uh, it's no longer the case that extraction takes place always on, you know, very sort of discrete places on the other side of the planet. You know, now if we can extract the notion of 
extractivism to also, for example, non, um, to renewable energy resources. If we can ex you know, expand as well to thinking about agricultural resources, um, we can begin to see, in fact, that the that it's evident the impacts are becoming evident actually on our doorsteps. It's no longer a far away thing. It's no a far, you know a process which is you know um, held invisible because of distance. More and more of this assemblage is becoming evident to us as it encroaches ever closer to our homes. Mm -hmm. And just one thing to add about the slow violence um, issue. Um, the book is not only about slow violence, it's also about fast violence. And um, in fact, over the last very short period of time, uh, the murders of what are called land defenders have gone skyrocketing in number. I remember when I first started teaching about uh, basically environment and human rights and the number of so-called environmental martyrs you could almost put on the fingers of one hand, you know, Chico Mendes or uh, you know, this very, very small number of people um, who were murdered in the name as, as they were trying to protect the land. And now um, you know, the documents say that they're really literally hundreds and hundreds of these people are killed every year. Um, so um, that's really featured in a couple of the articles, particularly the ones about Latin America. Yeah, no, I mean, the statistics that are being revealed now by organizations such as Global Witness are very shocking. Uh, so last year was the, the year with the highest rate of killings of what they de determine as being land defenders. Land defenders is a very broad category, which covers, you know, everything from environmentalists to human rights activists concerned with the impacts of extractive processes to indigenous peoples who uh, are just trying to defend their community, etc. And the numbers, the, the numbers of people being killed and targeted um, are rising. And with that, we should also acknowledge that it's not only about killings, it's about threats, it's about um, displacement from land, etc, etc. So this is increasing as we go on. And, and it's kind of, you know, it's not only um, it, it's not only shocking with thought about the, the impacts of fossil fuel uh, production, but it's also shocking when we also, if we, if we expand this category of extractivism to um, other forms of resources, uh, including renewables, including, you know, efforts to try and build wind power parks um, or solar arrays or so, so on, you know, I mean, problematically, very problematically, we're also seeing also targeted assassinations and also threats being made to communities that are also similarly up in arms or protesting those kinds of projects. So it's not just something, you know, these kinds of uh, violent impacts are not only to be attributed to, you know, uh, in a classical sense to fossil fuel development, but it is also to be attributed as well to, unfortunately, what we might now call the green transition or processes of, of uh, the green economy. Uh, if I can I... add something about that, just with respect to China, um, the Belt and Road Initiative is focusing primarily on um, infrastructure, and that's deep water ports, high-speed rail, um, highways, uh, dams, um, power plants, and all of those infrastructure projects, in addition to being massive carbon emitters and facilitators of the global trade that increases 
the amount of carbon that is being emitted also carves up landscapes and transforms livelihoods. So when you build um, you know, a, a highway or a railroad through a rainforest, you're not just dividing it in half, but you're providing um, the inroad literally for a whole cap set of capillaries that will ultimately eat away um, habitat for people and habitat for um, non-human um, living beings. So um, yeah, I would say the Belt and Road is um, very, very impactful in terms of uh, the kind of both slow and fast violence um, that we are describing. And a lot of these projects, the Chinese are completely surprised because they often sign a deal with some kind of member of the elite and they seem to have permission to build the dam or whatever it is. And they have no experience in dealing with communities. They have no, no concept of indigenous rights. And so when there are then protests, they're ca caught completely off guard and they tend to handle the situation rather poorly. Um, so very quickly, if we can just touch on the two chapters that you were co-authors on. Um, Judith, if you could just say, a three-sentence definition of what is the Belt and Road and what your chapter found? Ah, okay, uh, in, so a, in a few more than three sentences. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, my co-author, Yifei Li, is um, a professor at NYU Shanghai. And um, we chose, actually, rather than to focus on the things I just described in terms of uh, deep water ports and all that, we chose to look at um, extractivism, that you might not expect to find on the Belt and Road. The Belt and Road is just China's umbrella term for China's massive going out strategy. And it started as a land route to revivify the old Silk Road and then adding a kind of a sea route around South Asia. But now it's just everything you want. There's a Latin America is on the Belt and Road and there's a polar Belt and Road and there's a dairy Belt and Road and there's an outer space Belt and Road. So, you know, whatever you want, it's still there. But um, so what we decided to do was to find uh, three places where you might not expect to find extraction on the Belt and Road. So it's not about China buying up grain fields or Peru's anchovy fisheries or all that, which is also incredibly important. Rather, we discovered that um, we talk about tourism extraction. The, when the Chinese travel, they're often not, they're not very experienced at this time. And so to reassure them, um, the Chinese state has basically built mini Chinas, um, particularly in Samarkand. Um, so they go off to Samarkand and they can visit the mosque and the, the, you know, the, 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 the marketplace, but then they can go to a place that just reminds them exactly of the drum tower back home in Beijing, right? So um, this kind of extraction of culture, it's eradication of culture also. That's one form of extractivism that we discovered. We also um, profiled the Dairy Belt and Road, which has more to do with the control of the supply chain between China and New Zealand and Australia with respect to um, dairy products. And the final um, bit of extractivism that's again, unconventional extractivism is the extraction of talent. And we explored the way China is seeking to develop um, talented people in developing countries and make it very much in their interest to take study tours to China, to learn the Chinese way, and basically to throw their lot in with China rather than with the West. That's an, you know, yet another kind of unconventional extraction. That was our chapter. 
Okay. I mean, that last sort of talent spotting and grabbing is something that empires have always wanted to do because, of course, smart people might want their country back. And if you can get them to be conflicted in, and uh, not trusted by colleagues who didn't go to the to the metropole, then it gives you more time uh, as an empire. But I digress. Uh, John, Andrew, do you quickly want to explain sort of why rivers should have rights and also touch on this extra activism concept yeah. that you introduce in your chapter? So, I mean, the subtitle to our book is, is Violence and Resistance. And so um, as much as we've talked about, you know, the dominant ontology of extractivism, um, we've also... Um, um, we've also observed that there are uh, counter uh, ontologies. There are other ways of thinking about the world as well. Um, and that those other ways of thinking about the world, interestingly, are beginning to have expression in legal terms, in legal cases, in fact. And so um, the chapter I wrote together with Whitney Richardson, Whitney was a former a uh, master student of mine uh, who's now actually uh, uh, a candidate in law uh, over in the United States. Um, this chapter that we wrote um, was written off the back of the, the master's um, thesis work that she'd done, the master's research that she'd done on the Atrato case, which is one of these cases where um, a court ruling has, has found in favor of the subject rights of the river, right? So recognizing the river as though it was in fact a subject of rights. Therefore, as as it were, were almost an individual, a human individual that should be provided with, as a human individual, forms of protection. Uh, and this was a court case also judging uh, where there was a judgment really about the actions of the Colombian state um, and its failure to live up to um, a protection of constitutional rights. So this is one case, um, one case actually of many. There are now a number of cases like this which are cropping up across the world. I'm also part of a project that has been recently funded by the Norwegian Research Council, um, a project called Riverine Rights, where we are looking at a number of similar cases to the Trato case, uh, where we're looking at um, for example, the cases that um, um, occurred in India surrounding the Ganges River, the Narmada River and the Umada River. We're looking also at the Wanguniya River case uh, in New Zealand. And so that's the, the, these were the, the first cases of that nature um, where there were rulings in favor of the subject rights of these rivers. Um, there is, however, now uh, there's actually a growing number of these cases, which have some of which have not come to conclusion, um, and some of which have come to conclusion from other places across the world, and so it's it's actually very much a, a part of a global trend, and part very clearly part of a global trend. Not only um, where there's a concern about the rights of rivers, but also concern as well with the rights of nature, uh, and so in fact, as well as rivers, these cases now increasingly also look to other features of our natural world, forests, mountains, um, lakes, uh, you know, parts of the Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a, there's a real trend of this, of exp an expanding trend, finding in favor of the subject rights of, of rivers. And of course, you know, this what we might call an ecocentric trend 
is very different from our un earlier understandings of rights around resources, because earlier, you know, rulings have more been, more commonly been about the rights of the human populations surrounding those rivers to access and use of those rivers. But here we're finding, in fact, in favor of the subject rights of the rivers. There's a real change in, in the logics, uh, uh, one that very much confronts also previous economic rationality, uh, previ ra previous rationalities of valuing nature with a dollar sign um, or, or on, only purely in economic terms. Here there's very much an emphasis as well on understanding these rivers as entities and therefore a shift is being made as well in a direction which is a direction that we're, we're also you know has been an increasing trend within social theory um, um, across in fact the social sciences in terms of what we might call as post-humanism of, of moving towards an understanding of the fact that humans and nature are not separate and that also that that, that nature itself or elements of nature have agency in their own right. Uh, and so these ecocentric uh, law cases are efforts to try and recover that and, and put that forward into the political debate. And, and, and very much of, you know, these legal cases um, have really created enormous, uh, uh, enormous debates in each of the countries that they've taken place with regards to um, how we understand nature, but also what this also means in terms of changes that might be made to environmental governance, recognizing the rights of uh, the, the, these particular nature subjects. So thanks very much for explaining your two chapters. But of course, there are many other chapters in this book. Um, Judith, could you explain just quickly what the other chapters are about? Hmm. Well, the book is structured in three parts. So the first part is theoretical, um, thinking about what violence means, what extraction means, what extractivism means, what extra activism means. Um, and so those contributors include people from Finland. Um, we had quite a big contingent of people um, from Finland who contributed quite a lot. Um, and also scholars from the Norwegian University of Life Sciences, Katharina Klab and Kirsti Stuvoy, and then Paul Wapner from my university. And then the middle section is a mostly empirical section where we talk about the intensification of violence at the local level. And there um, we have uh, chapters on Latin America from Garrett Grady Lovelace, and um, an interesting chapter on the built environment from an architect who works with me called Vicky Kichel. And Philippe Le Billon and Nicholas Middledorp contributed a chapter about free, prior, and informed consent, um, rather free, prior, and informed consultation, um, which often doesn't, um, according to them, doesn't always work as it's intended to. And then the final, big section is about the innovative new ways that we're seeing extractivism um, in, in the new era. And so that includes my chapter on the Belt and Road, as well as the chapter John was describing about the rights of rivers, um, a chapter also from the Finns or the Finnish contingent on digital extraction. 
And um, also very interesting chapter from my colleague, Simon Nicholson on geoengineering and how the extraction of carbon from the atmosphere is also a place you know, we wouldn't expect to find extractivism. Um, and then because Michael Watts wrote such a sort of tour de force final chapter, we gave him um, a standalone section because I think it uh, really summarizes all of those different dimensions. Maybe John would be best to describe that chapter a little bit more. Yeah, I can certainly try. Um, you know, it's it's. Um... You know, as Judy said, it was such a tour de force. It was such a, an expansive piece. And um, on reflection, Judy and I felt that we really need to actually give it its due by actually creating a, an entire section of the book for one chapter. Uh, I mean, Michael Watts is a well-known uh, writer on oil politics uh, with, and specifically on oil, politi oil, oil politics in Nigeria. Um, he's also considered to be one of the, the fathers as well of, of political ecology uh, as well as a, a political geographer. Um, and this chapter is, is a, a, a real wonderful, a really wonderful piece and um, a piece that certainly um, adds to our book in a very strong, uh, in a strong way. It's a chapter that's titled Hyper Extractivism and the Global Oil Assemblage, Visible and Invisible Networks in Frontier Spaces. And what it does is, I mean, it, it, it very much demonstrates uh, what I've talked about previously in this interview about the, the planetary nature of extractivism and the fact that there, this planetary system is built up of an assemblage um, of many, many different parts, some of which are tangible and some of which are intangible or unseen, some of which are legal and other parts that are clearly very illegal as well. And that these things, that the illegal and the, and the legal, they actually rely on each other. They, they can't be one without the other. Um, and so it goes through, uh, you know, many, many aspects. First of all, dealing with the, the fact that, you know, we are seeing an intensification of extractivism. Michael refers to the term hyper extractivism. Uh, which is a term that we've also taken up uh, more broadly speaking in the book as well to talk about this intensification process. Um, he talks about the way in which this um, assemblage is also extending itself into areas that were previously considered to be, you know, inconceivable with regards to um, oil extraction. And so now we're seeing, of course, the, the expansion of um, oil drilling into the far Arctic, into the far north, um, whether, whether it be, you know, um, the Bering Sea or whether it be other parts um, of the Arctic that, you know, were previously because of technological limits were basically impossible. And now they are being increasingly made possible by the introduction of, of new technologies. As I said, he also um, explores this whole relationship between um, the illicit and the illicit, the legal and the illegal, um, talking very much uh, about um, you know, the way in which there is the formation around the legal market for oil, also the formation as well um, of markets for smuggled fuel or the bunkering of oil um, and uh, the way in which that also um, 
has its fingers, has its linkages as well into um, interesting networks within international finance. And so that uh, also the, the international finance and the international trading system is also, you know, made complicit in this whole process um, of the legal and the illegal. Um, one feeds off the others. Um, so he, he also uh, has an interesting section exploring the illicit life of a barrel of oil, essentially trying to sort of say, that, you know, something about, you know, the take, you know, the barrel of oil and look at all aspects of how that, that barrel of oil is transported and moved into the global economy. Uh, and so the illicit and illicit is explored in that. And linking to that also different kinds of ontologies. Um, so thinking about the, the intangible as well, the way in which, um, you know, oil is understood differently by different communities, by different actors within that global assemblage. Um, linking to piracy, um, thinking about consumption and the after oil, uh, the afterlife of oil, the, you know, the oil once it arrives, um, you know, on the other end of uh, uh, at the other end of the, the assemblage that it will be made use of either as a source of fuel um, for maybe heating and lighting, but also um, um, in terms of, of petrochemical production and so on. So there is there are other ways in which um, we have to acknowledge that oil is transformed from from one form into many other forms in which our global um, capitalist system relies. I mean, in, in our everyday lives, in fact, are entirely reliant as well on that barrel of oil um, for almost every every product that we would see amongst uh, see around us, whether it be at home or whether it be in the office, uh, relies very much on those uh, on that that oil. So, yeah, and looking at political and logistical orders, uh, the invisible supply chain, um, many different elements here: Log uh, logistics, finance, and first trades, contract theft, commodity traders. Uh, as I said, an extremely expansive chapter <laughs> for our book, uh, and very much one that I think that captures the complexity of that uh, global assemblage, um, and also captures as well that the notion here as well that there are violences being expressed in the trade for oil which go beyond the physical, which become very clearly structural, ontological, symbolic as well. And so that um, we um, clearly see that the impacts then of this system um, are very, very diverse. I'd just like to make some closing observations from what you've both said, if you'll indulge me. One is um, this notion of sort of exhausting one arena and then having to go looking elsewhere in in more difficult to find places using new technologies reminds me of an, a book by the anthropologist Marvin Harris called Cannibals and Kings where he argues that the search for protein meant that um, once you'd killed off all the slow-moving megafauna and you still needed your protein, you'd go hunting for harder to find things and harder to find things. The other is maybe less highbrow. It's an article from the Onion newspaper 
published shortly after the Deepwater Horizon disaster. And I've always thought that the, the clue was in the name there twice. Deepwater and Horizon both tell you that this is places that oil companies didn't need to use to go because there was there was more low-hanging fruit. But anyway, the Onion article says major environmental disaster as oil tanker safely reaches port and unloads. And then it traces the damage caused by the normal operating of the system where there are no spills. There is, there's nothing goes wrong. And I suppose the final thing I'd say is that the modern environmental movement, if you want to call it that, began in the late 60s, famously with that river, I can never say the name, Cuyahoga, whatever, you know, briefly catching fire and the Santa Barbara oil spill. And sort of the last big oil spill that seemed to rouse us as a species, I mean, you'd have to say it was Exxon Valdez or, or possibly Deepwater Horizon. But by the time of Deepwater Horizon, everybody kind of knows the game is up and is sort of collectively shrugging their shoulders. As I recall Exxon Valdez, there was this sense that you know things shouldn't be like this um of course they continued to be like this um those those that was me on my soapbox so do apologize <laughs> so the final question is what next where does now that you've sort of written this edited volume and it's got such rich different conceptual and empirical material in there what do you hope both of you as individuals or as a group or as a, a broader academic field, what do you hope comes next? If I can start, maybe Judy, I don't know. Well, I say for, for this book, my personal hope is simply that um, people will understand that it's an open access volume. And I hope that many of the chapters will find lives in the classroom um, and on the desks of policymakers or whatever, because it really, it, there is such a range of um, voices there, but you know, there's a coherent volume as well. But I, I think that a lot of the chapters would lend themselves to uh, classroom use. As far as um, my own work, I'm, I keep giving all these interviews about China and the, the cop in Glasgow, you know, and so I'm just still watching what China is doing there on the Belt and Road, and um, I don't think that's a story that's going to go away anytime soon, and I feel that uh, having become more sensitized to the many ways in which China is extracting um, and imposing, actually, you know, imposition is also a form of extraction, imposing its vision of the way the globe should develop, um, whether by enticement or coercion. Um, yeah, I think this is a story that for me doesn't go away. So, yeah. I mean, again, you know, the subtitle of the book is, is violence and resistance. And uh, I think that by giving it that subtitle, we, on the one hand, wanted to I guess, um, on the one hand, you know, emphasize the horror that can surround extractive activities, um, but also to try and give some note of hope as well, as different forms of resistances are tested out. Uh, and some of which also, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, proved to be useful, uh, um, break new ground on at least taming some of the worst consequences of, of natural resource extraction. 
so that's one thing that so there's an empirical desire that came you know that that we wanted to put across with the book we also hope that the book expands as well quite clearly um a more academic conceptualization of how we understand extraction and extractivism um thinking about the logics um and practices and i, I think that it's a book as well in that sense in terms of expanding conceptualizations expanding an understanding of extraction it's a book as well that can be applied as well to um talking about discussing uh, attempting to understand other aspects of extraction and extractivism that we haven't covered uh, there is more out there yet to be said about these processes um and history is not over yet either and so uh, you know, we're, there are new developments that are taking place, um, such as, you know, deep sea mining that is on, that are on the cards. Um, we are also seeing also um, these rich billionaires um, beginning to think about movements off planet. In fact, to think about um, the extraction of natural resources, whether it be on the moon or Mars or goodness knows where else and asteroid belts and all of that. So all of that, um, you know, we need also conceptual tools to understand what goes on there too, right? And I think that this book has some level of importance with regards to that. It can be extended in that direction to look at these new processes. Um, and so I think that the, I would hope that the book has a lasting significance uh, to academic debate and academic reflection um, on that basis. In terms of my own work, uh, you know, I continue in this project that looks at river rights, uh, this project called Riverine Rights. I'm also involved in another project as well that's looking at the violence surrounding um, renewable energy development in Africa, which is uh, led by the Peace Research Institute here in Oslo and funded by the Norwegian Research Council. Um, and I'm in discussions with colleagues about the development of projects that will actually look specifically at the governance of space, the governance of natural resource extraction when it's off planet. Uh, am I allowed to say far out in a comedy Indeed. 1960s yeah, it is voice? Um, with that, uh, I'd uh, like to thank my guests, John Andrew McNish and Judith Shapiro. Uh, I'm Mark Hudson. You've been listening to the new book books network um, podcast and all of the details about the book that you we've been talking about are there on the website uh thanks for listening